the system won't fix the system. As Audrey Lord says, you know, the master's tools won't dismantle the master's house. And so you need to create other forms of capital that the system doesn't do. Like, for example, the, the friends and family gap exists because the system isn't built for people who don't have friends and family with money. Welcome to Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. In 1944, after the Second World War, the U.S. government unveiled the GI Bill to welcome back veterans and avoid replicating the economic instability that followed the 1929 stock market crash. Often dubbed the magic carpet of the middle class, the bill offered practical support to returning soldiers through low-interest, no-money-down loans to buy a home or start a business, subsidized tuition and living expenses to attend high school or college, and generous unemployment benefits. According to federal U.S. statistics, about 9 million veterans took advantage of the initiative. U.S. college and university degree holders more than doubled between 1940 and 1950. The initiative touched 8 out of 10 men born in the 1920s. But the program was designed to fit into Jim Crow laws and therefore excluded African-American veterans and their families. This exclusion of black families from access to ownership, white-collar jobs, college, and voting resulted in a widening wealth gap that has yet to be overcome. According to the Brookings Institute, in 2019, the median white household's wealth was 7.8 times that of the typical black household. So what does this mean for BIPOC entrepreneurs emerging in 2022 in the United States? A few weeks ago, I had the great pleasure of chatting with Kevin Jones, a successful serial entrepreneur who, with his wife, has built media and event businesses centered on niche communities. I met Kevin years ago in San Francisco at the influential SOCAP conference he co-founded with his wife and later sold. I've followed his journey since then as he continues to inspire and convene folks who want to make change around themes of money and meaning. When we caught up, I was in Paris before an engagement as entrepreneur-in-residence supporting women entrepreneurs in the emerging Albanian ecosystem, and Kevin joined me from his home in Asheville, North Carolina. It seemed particularly fitting that we should talk of neighborhood economics and of entrepreneurship as a vehicle for social mobility. Really, the need for SOCAP came from two or three different forces. One of them uh, came from the way we were kicked out of Bill Gates' office. We were starting one of the first of what's now called an impact fund. The term then was social venture, which I really liked better. We were in there trying to invest in a fair trade company in Bill Gates' office, you know, Melinda French Gates, a strange husband. Uh, and uh, we had been uh, wanting to invest in a fair trade coffee company that had been, it was founded by one of his direct reports. So we got into his office, right? And at 16 seconds, he stood up and said, stop. I can't be around this idea. And he acted like it hurt his solar plexus. He said, look, I have two pockets. Okay, let's look at it this way. I have one pocket and we'll put all the money in the world there. I have another smaller pocket I want to do good with. And you say there's a bridge between those two. You have to leave. I, that's not an idea I'm interested in. Because, and so he became the founder of what we called two-pocket thinking. Uh, you know, it's a better branding than Microsoft Bob. And, you know, it was one pocket is you think about yourself, you, you are justified in being self-centered. You're, you're the child of Milton Friedman. You know, he said the only purpose of business is to be profitable. That's the social enterprise uh, to return capital to the shareholders. And then you have another smaller pocket 
that you do good with, and that's philanthropy. And so philanthropy and investing were divided. And we got kicked out of two other billionaires' offices, uh, but they didn't, they, you know, let us buy them breakfast. <laughs> before they said, this is not something we want to be around. And they all act like the idea of physically hurt them. In fact, when we were talking to one fellow around it, about it, he was a, a major donor in the Acumen Fund, which was venture philanthropy. You give, they invest. And he was also in early stage uh, venture capital. He you know, inherited money. And uh, that's how he made his funds. And um, he, he said, look, you know, uh, he did eat and then told us he stood up and we, we said, would you invest? No, would you, because we had our first venture fund there. And would you uh, refer us? No, would you say something good about us? If it was no. And he said, look, you have to realize your idea is wrong. Your plan is flawed. You're the wrong guys. Your chances for failure are high and I don't want my name associated with you. And then he left us to pay it for his breakfast. It was not an idea that, that the, even the folks who were on the cutting edge, early stage ventures who were the first institutional funding and also the cutting edge venture philanthropy liked. And so we wanted to say, no, the space is going to exist. It was a liminal space we had to create, you know, and it was that you could invest for good. You know, it wasn't a negative screen. It wasn't a positive screen. It was you could move your money for good. You could act with the goals of philanthropy to do good in the world, but you didn't have to do it with money that you just gave away and didn't come back. You can have the money come back to you. And of course, that had been done by CDFIs and it had been done by folks like Shore Bank, et cetera, but it had never been done in venture capital equity. And so, you know, we, the cutting edge innovation. You know, it had been coming up from affordable housing, and they've done a lot. And this was cutting edge Silicon Valley trying to say, we can do good using the tools of the market. And so we launched it as the market at the intersection of money and meaning. And so we had to make that intersection exist. Another one of the drivers was that everybody else was doing their convening wrong. Uh, and I was uh, getting to the point of the tech cash out, and I was in the room, but they aren't sure about, you know, is this tech cash out going to be a bully and a dilettante, you know, and I was getting in the room where they would take me seriously. I'd, you know, not, not the, not toss my cookies on my shoes or, or offended people that much. And there were two groups starting to do a meeting of uh, a gathering to say, move this thing of investing for good forward. And they couldn't agree on the words and they wouldn't meet with each other. One was led by a group you would know. Another was led by a group you would know. And I said, I was invited to both. And they said, and they wouldn't talk to each other. I said, well, I can do a conversation map of what they're calling this thing that doesn't quite exist, that maybe should exist. And you're calling this thing that couldn't, should exist and didn't exist. And they loved the idea at first. And then they said, uh, they only had 10 minutes. <clears throat> and then they reduced it and they said, there's no time for it. And want to know what the people who are not in the room with you, who are meeting in another room are saying. And they, the guy said, no, we think we have the right people in the room. And I realized, oh, that poor fella. You know, he grew up drive, flying business class, you know, with to the resorts that his parents got him to, and he went to good schools. And he thought it was about getting the right people in the room, and you pre-vetted the people. And so it's kind of the, the model of a summit where you decide who's around the table of the ac accepted and good. And so I said, no, markets are messy, and they value the barbarian and the Byzantine, and you find a place to 
multiculturally trade. And there's actually an interesting historical example. Uh, when Suleiman took over Constantinople, uh, the silk trade couldn't end up there because he was not sure what he wanted to do and it wasn't safe. So they, uh, the, the market at the end of the Silk Road moved to Trebizond in what's now Armenia. And it was a great multicultural market. And so when the state failed, the market still survived. So the barbarians would bring their finely tanned goat hides there and the, the silk from uh, China would get there and the Byzantine you know, scroll work, brass and bronze would be there. And so you know, it was a multicultural trading, but they learned to value the valuable stranger and to assess value across cultures. And markets can do that when states cannot and they shut down, which is you know, something we have to look at in these days with, with people shutting things down. And so that, and so I, we, we tried to go out and find the valuable stranger, the people you don't know that who should be at the table and have them become unlikely allies. And so we did that. We brought in development agencies, you know, working in Sub-Saharan Africa and other places with CDFIs, community development finance institutions in the U.S. coming up from affordable housing to lending to marginalized communities to these new, you know, what's, what we call impact investors now and, and to the philanthropists who often were coming out of Silicon Valley who wanted to make a real difference with their money as opposed to just give it to the United Way. And so we would be kind of like an oasis at the middle of all the caravans and, and to create a place where everybody could, you know, a big tent where everybody could go. And we would consciously expand the tent. We, you know, we would bring indigenous deals to the table and explain how to invest in a respectful way in indigenous communities rather than, you know, in your typical kind of colonial extractive way. And so, you know, we built it that way. And so it grew because we were the place that people in, from development agencies in Washington, in Germany would come to SoCal because they could meet there without their aides having to make formal meetings. Uh, and, and they could get around protocols by meeting at SoCal <laughs> because it was where everybody started to come. And we had the idea of everybody's welcome. Uh, my wife is an Episcopal priest, and, and so we called it the market at the intersection of money and meaning. And so, you know, everyone is welcome at the table. You know, there, there, there is abundance here. And so people who would have to, you know, schedule and have their organizations filter their desire to look at potential partnerships that were out of bounds, built those partnerships in SoCal. So we've seen the pandemic has really brought to light that a lot of access to opportunity is still really uneven. How do you, knowing that you've been using this approach for so long, this inclusive, this cultural approach, how can we accelerate that? That just seems to take so long for inclusion to be part of the equation. Yeah, I can tell you how, what I've done since I've left SOCAP and why I started leaving SOCAP after it was successful. I mean, I'm a serial entrepreneur, so, you know, uh, I don't like to, it, I'm, I'm a, I can start things that fail, so I can't became the largest such gathering of impact investors and social entrepreneurs in the world, you know, 3,000 people from 67 countries, I think, in 2019. But um, it became more market-focused, so that was one of the things I found less interesting. It became more mainstream. And, and so that meant that they wanted to do good and do just as well and didn't want to bear the cost of doing good. You know, they wanted to, and you can, you can do impact investing at market rate. You just can't do structural and systemic change at market rate. You know, there is a cost to embedded injustice that the market can't 
obliterate on its own. It needs to be partnered with philanthropy and with civic action and volunteer effort and faith-based uh, action. People doing things locally that they wouldn't do if you talk them to them about asset classes, but if you talk about investing in a community where your grandchildren want to move back, then people can do this kind of, you know, uh, concessionary investing, I think it's, it's become a, a really big thing. And it's called catalytic capital at this point. It's the side of the market that kept the meaning alive as impact investing kind of moved to be market rate and more focused on the market and less focused on the meaning. But I had a, an experience about seven years ago or so, so 2015, we brought, we invested in some impact hubs, which are co-working spaces for social entrepreneurs, one in Oakland led by a black woman, Tonda Mason. And I brought her to SoCap uh, to say, look at all this, it's wonderful. And she said, well, look, you know, we scholarship 100 plus entrepreneurs. And so there are more uh, African entrepreneurs scholarships here than there are African-Americans. And I looked and that, her question changed my life. She said, you know, it was a rhetorical question, but I'm a, been an investigative journalist in my uh, history. I've put a uh, Mississippi sheriff in prison for, on 53 counts of fraud and I've broken an insurance scandal. And so when, when a question comes up, I can't really let it go. And so I looked and at that year, seven years ago, would it be 2014 or so, there were more Kenyans and Ugandan scholarship than there were African-Americans. Or Mississippi history, I mean, the difference in Mississippi and a lot of the rest of the states in the union is that Mississippi races don't lie. And in most other states, people act in a racist way by themselves. And so I, I got a picture of black and white relationships that's more accurate than I think a lot of coastal folks have. In Mississippi, if you speak up against racism, you've already faced, uh, you, you've paid a cost. You know, as a white business person, you're no longer invited to those places. So you have to do something. And so the people who do things get to know each other. And there's a level of trust. Whereas when I moved back to California in 96, I discovered that white folks would say things but not do things. And I was like, oh my goodness, why is he not trying? Back in Mississippi, the only person of color who ever came in the front door of the Baptist church in Inouye County was a doctor from Tanzania from the mission field. And all the other people of color entered either into the, um, through the kitchen or the tool shed. It's easier for white Americans to invest and give to Africans and respect Africans than it is African-Americans. There's no history and there's no guilt and there's no whatever. And so uh, for a couple of years, I uh, put prominent African-American venture capitalists on stage, Tisha Cash, uh, Ben Jealous, formerly NACP, Deval Patrick, who had an impact fund with uh, Bain, I think it was, former governor of uh, Massachusetts. And, it didn't change, Ed Duggar, it didn't change anything. Uh, and then Jessica Norwood pointed out to me that the real critical gap was friends and family funding, that they didn't get that. And that's why they weren't venture capitalists. That's why they weren't venture capitalist deals. And so at the, and I was right at the point where I can understand that because I was working with two accelerators led by people of color, one in Cincinnati called Mortar and one in Oakland called Optima. And uh, I was... A, well-meaning white guy volunteer able to fundraise on, on behalf of folks and i did some of that and then he said look you know you, we, you can just solve this early stage funding that you know they weren't ready for debt they weren't ready for the loans from cdfis that are concessionary loans they needed they were startups they needed startup money or they needed to go from startup to some runway to grow before they could be ready for a loan 
90 plus percent of black owned businesses in, in the United States are sole proprietors, one to three uh, employees, no more than three. And they very often don't get the loans from these community development finance institutions that are supposed to be for them. And nobody asked that, that those loans get out the door before George Floyd. You know, those funds could exist all over the country. And if they didn't actually put money out on the street, nobody minded. It's kind of like the earned income tax credit. I had a friend who was up the Senate staff who said the Democrats wanted the earned income tax credit for poor folks to exist. The Republicans wanted it not to work, and they both got their way. They're also, there are all these funds set up all over the country and given to CDFIs through Community Reinvestment Act money, which is what banks have to do to reach out to the communities they're redlining, not putting money into. And CFIs are kind of a, a, a cleansing of that money, but if the money didn't actually do anything, nobody minded. You know, I think one of the things that's happened since George Floyd is that people are asking, why don't those funds get the money out on the street? So we've, I've been working in that space. We built the runway project, uh, co-founded it with Jessica Norwood. And it's not, we found out the kind of money they need. So this became my thing of like, okay, they don't go to SoCal because they don't get friends and family money. And so I, I went, going back to my epiphany and, and my cluelessness, I said, let's do Kiva loans. Kiva loans are, you, you can just do them at their no interest at $25. But each borrower, each would-be entrepreneur, has to find 25 friends with 25 people to get them up on the platform. You have to have some level of money around your social capital. What I found is that in 40 or so entrepreneurs, in Optima, in Oakland, in the Accelerator, and in Mortar, the Accelerator in Cincinnati, not one entrepreneur had 25 friends with $25 free. Their $25 was already spoken for. And it's like, oh my goodness, I've been raising successful funds and things. And you know, friends and family means you call somebody you know, and you tell them a story. And after a while, they give you money. They had friends and family and nobody had, there was no rich uncle in the room. There was no rich aunt. And that's because there's not intergenerational wealth uh, for uh, a lot of public policy reasons, you know, redlining so that you, they couldn't get mortgages after the Depression. Another version of redlining after World War II where they couldn't get VA loans, which are, you know, the assets people call on to go start up. They, they, their houses didn't have that equity, you know. And there's other, other kinds of, and, and so they never went from sole proprietors at the most part, you know, 90% sole proprietors under 50,000 revenue. So, you know, the lifestyle business is just, you know, side hustles, right? And so I wanted to solve that. We've now got a fund that is doing that in Asheville, where I live. I'm led by a black woman that I've been working with for a few years. You know, we discovered there are all these loan things that are trying to reach these people. Well, look, these are businesses that aren't ready for a loan. So you can't make any money on them, but you can create a fund that invests in them, that replenishes itself through so we do what's called venture philanthropy. You give and we invest. And then we give them two years of runway, which we discovered with the runway project is what they need. And that gives them the money to hire people and to grow and then become ready for the CDFI loans. And then they pay us back our revenue share. We raised more than a million and a half of dollars for that fund. And we've put so far 200,000 out on the street and are, are getting close to 30 jobs created by the three businesses there, which is a pretty amazing job creation ratio. 
And we're finding that gap exists everywhere in the belt. It's really interesting. We were talking to Axiom, a big vendor, uh, CDFI in Chicago, and they've discovered the gap. There's post-George Floyd, they're saying, why isn't this money getting out on the streets and entrepreneurs of color? Well, here's what typically happens. They have an accelerator. It's easy to raise startup money. When accelerator had 4,000 uh, businesses go through uh, people of color led in five years, only 1% were able to get the CDFI loans afterwards because they didn't have money to hire, to grow, to handle debt. So the, the racial wealth gap has to be bridged by philanthropic capital that then replenishes itself. One of the, and so we found that faith-based people love this idea because you know they can give to their church. It goes out through a donor advised fund to a, the, our fund. And if, they, if their church gives $5,000 in five years, that money is repaid, and so they, they now have $10,000 that they've given without coming back to them to say, give us more, but they can engage with these businesses. How did, how did you so, come up yeah. with that idea? How, how did you connect faith? Well, you know, we had a couple things that didn't work. I mean, I did, you know, this is version three of solving this problem of the friends. And so we discovered that, that for, for, if you don't have a rich uncle, because you don't have intergenerational wealth, if you don't have a rich aunt, because there's no money passed down, there's no house with a, with a strong mortgage, then you need to institutionalize what is social for white folks. That means you need to institutionalize friends and family. You need a virtual rich aunt vehicle. So I've been working on creating that, and I've done a couple of them that didn't quite work. And so we got with a major uh, venture capitalist who wanted to do good, and, and we, were trying, we had a thing called a pooled income fund, so he could actually invest, and he says, look, I wait, I'm going to wait too long to, to get any money that is any, and then won't, won't be meaningful. Let me just give you some money and you invest it. And so it's like, oh, that's what will work. And so, you know, give to invest. Acumen Fund pioneered venture philanthropy, you know, 20 plus years ago, new schools venture fund. But, you know, it's been sort of taken over by the market is the answer in impact investing. Well, it, 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 there's a gap of people not ready to be invested in and get your money back. And so almost always, if you look at any major market innovation, it starts with philanthropy or subsidy. So fair trade started with grants and subsidy. Uh, microfinance started with, you know, started like, it was started by CARE and the Mennonites, you know, and they just wanted to not give people money, but invest in them so they could uh, create businesses. And, and then it became a market phenomenon in the multi-billion dollar industry. So nobody had been looking at this gap, the friends and family gap, because the people who build funds look like me, white folks, with access to money. And so they don't realize that these folks have huge extended friends and family, but they don't have any 25 people with $25 to spare in their network. It's a gap that the people who were trying to solve the problem didn't have, so they didn't see it. So uh, there's a couple of funds like us now. There's a thing called uh, We Power in St. Louis. There's a few of these that are realizing to actually fill this thing, you need venture philanthropy, which is, you know, you don't hear much of, but that's a really important thing. And then when you invest in them, they pay us back by revenue share and it replenishes the fund. So the money will be recycled in our community. So, you know, we're doing 50000 to $75,000 investments. It'll be recycled. Our first version called the Runway Project, the Self-Help Credit Union in uh, 2016 in Oakland, was the right kind of money to the entrepreneur, but we thought that investors needed to make money on it. 
And if you did that, self-help lost money on every deal. And so they didn't really want it to grow because let's grow this loss leader. Well, I don't know, maybe not. So in this thing, you know, and so when you start with giving to do good, I mean, there's been a real awakening among Christians and Jews that with this white Christian nationalism that they don't want to be like those folks who are grabbing the headlines. And so they want to take action on racial justice. And so we had Zoom calls with, you know, people in our community, uh, the living wage group uh, called Just Economics had really good uh, relationships with communities of faith. The synagogue, the Jews for Justice group, the Loma Radical, the Episcopal Church, the Methodists, uh, you know, all these folks would have Zoom calls with them and they love the story. I mean, they want to do something around racial justice and creating intergenerational wealth is important. If, if a black family has a business, their net worth grows 12x compared to the net worth of a black family that doesn't own a business. So, you know, on a broad basis, entrepreneurship is the path to wealth for marginalized communities for whom jobs and education are not a path to mobility because if they get education, they won't get hired as much, they won't get promoted as much because people who hire, hire people like themselves, promote people like themselves. So they need to make their, their own, you know, God bless the child who has their own. So entrepreneurship is, is across all uh, marginalized communities, you know, black, brown, immigrant, whatever, is the path to wealth for people outside the system for whom the system isn't working. So we're solving a critical gap of, of institutionalizing the friends and family level. And so that's what you, what, what's kind of interesting. We've gotten money from a, a local, we did, you know, a founder contribution from the Eagle Markets uh, Community Development Corporation, the, the founder, Stephanie Swepson Twitty, a black woman who's built a really strong uh, CDC for 27 years in Buncombe County, and she's done affordable housing and uh, business incubation and small loan programs and things like that. And she and I have been working together for more than two years now. We, we like working together. And, you know, I tell the story to white folks, and she knows how to get things done. And... Uh, yeah, so, and, and she knows how to work with institutions and has so much credibility because of her track record. We've hired a, a fund manager now. So people of faith are looking for some way to take action to say that Black Lives Matter and we want to do more than click like. We want to take some action in response to their faith that, you know, they're, they're, they are, uh, treat your neighbor as yourself. Oh my goodness, look at this. So many people woke up to systemic racial injustice uh, a couple summers ago. And we found people in faith are wanting to take action individually and collectively uh, in, in a bigger way than, than any other group. So they were our first, we kind of call them our catalytic visionary in, uh, investors because they invested because it should exist. And they invested because they wanted to do something to show that they were taking action from what they thought was right. And then we, they helped us get to a crowdfunding raise about 30,000 through a, a, a WeFunder crowdfunding campaign, you know, Facebook Messenger and emails and calls and whatever. And so the foundation gave us more money than we'd asked for. And so this is where Stephanie and I are a really good team. You know, she says she doesn't, as a black woman of 60 something, she doesn't really ask for much because she wants to make sure it's okay to ask, right? Whereas I'm an entitled white guy who's used to getting more than I deserve. So we're a good team on the ask. She said, well, geez, we would love some help around capacity or something. And I said, look, 
do you, you like job creation? We're working with, with sole proprietors. Judge us on how many jobs are created by these sole proprietors. Uh, what's the growth in revenue of those businesses? And what's the growth in income of the people hired? And he said, oh, the county commissioner leads said, that's the kind of thing counties can invest in. Yeah, we can quantify our job creation within six months in a way that you will like, and we can, and we can replicate it. 93% of the Black-owned businesses in Buncombe County are, are sole proprietors, so we can grow a lot. So they're giving us uh, $750,000 over two years, $700,000 over two years, and now they're putting us forward for another half million dollar grant. Because we're a really solid, uh, you know, it's a latent opportunity for economic growth in communities that nobody looks at. Charlotte, uh, near us, big city, uh, in a relative terms, they have four accelerators for entrepreneurs of color. They 95% of, of Black-owned businesses in Charlotte are one employee, and they have nothing for them. And these are folks with, so we go to folks that have viable businesses, been around three years, 50 to 100,000 revenue. So they're, and, but they're, they can't quite be full-time and they're ready to grow. So we've, we've close to 30 jobs that are created in the three businesses. We've gotten to a landscaper who used our capital to be able to respond to an RFP from the forest service to hire 15 people. And we've got a, uh, a food and music venue who's hired 13 and so we're at maybe 28 jobs but i mean the county is you know they they've spent uh you know about two and a half million to get a raytheon job thing here that is you know going to be a hundred jobs over five years well we're, you know we're we're one-tenth of that amount and you're three times as many jobs in the first year so because it, it's this huge latent thing that nobody looked at you know, it's, it's a gap because the people with money don't have a friends and family gap. So that's a place we work. You, you mentioned individual and collective impact. And I'm just, I'm curious, yeah. like, one of the things that is obvious is you're very good at working cross-sectorally and, and also collaborating yeah. with folks. What do you see is most needed to, to accelerate this social mobility and, and build the generation? Yeah. Well, I think the friends and family gap is why you don't see as many black entrepreneurs moving up to venture back startups which are, can create some nominal wealth so we want to this is a, a a missing seed stage if you, you know actually in investing this is before seed it's friends and family friends and family needs to be seen as an asset class and so you can address it locally and you can do it through venture philanthropy so i think you know we can you know it's, it's like if you're starting a garden you know, we are soil preparation, you know, and everybody has seeds, but they haven't prepared the soil. And the soil is usually done in, in relationships. We think it needs to be done institutionally, a local replication of our fund. And we're, we're working with folks who want to replicate that problem. So I think, you know, looking at, so as we, as broadly, I'm looking to address the racial wealth gap. That's, you know, from Mississippi, I understand the racial wealth gap in a way that people from the coast don't typically because of, uh, you know, racism is not afraid to say its own name in Mississippi. So we're also working with our CDFI, Mountain BizWorks, uh, to do a BIPOC uh, silver tsunami fund. You know, BIPOC is, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color. And there's this thing called the silver tsunami. It's huge and it's growing. The number of baby boomers, people my age, who have family-owned businesses and the younger second generation doesn't want it, but they have no logical place to sell it. So, you know, you've built two dry cleaners, the kids are doctors and lawyers, 
and the, it's hard to buy. And so there, there are multiple movements around that. There's, there's a lot of people are looking at employee ownership, selling to your employees. And so we love that. And, and Project Equity is one of the groups that's doing that. And they've quantified uh, the market opportunity around baby boomers who need to sell in our region. So it's, we're 18 counties. And uh, there are 14,400 and something businesses where the youngest person at the business is 55 years old and there's no second generation at the business. And so they will need to sell. And, and, and uh, so we're doing several things. The, the CDFI is setting up a business brokerage. And a lot of people, if you have, if you have a, uh, let's just go back to our fellow family, mom and pop that own two dry cleaners. They're, they know their business. They don't know business transactions and buying businesses and how to sell. So we, we're starting a business brokerage to help them figure out how to, how to be at the table and learn to sell. And then we're working with uh, Black folks who could be owned by that business using the same venture philanthropy for the down payment. The, this is buying, you, so you can start a business, you can grow from a sole proprietor, another step up the food chain is to invest in uh, the black folks and brown folks buying businesses of boomers. And there's it's this huge wave that's called the silver tsunami. It's like we're going off stage, the people who have silver and white hair like me. Uh, and, you know, and, and they're, they're wanting to, you know, I'm a born in 1950 baby boomers, so I'm 71 and I'm, I'm not the earliest of the baby boomers. But my generation wants to sell lots of family businesses. And our, my kids are wonderful. One of them is a, a certified Byron Katie healer. The other is a permaculture farmer. And they don't want anything to do with business. You know, they, 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 they and they're great. And they live on, on my farm and next to our farm. So, you know, we're in a good relationship. But they, they, business was what dad and mom did. It's a big opportunity. And so to buy a, this dry cleaner, we can give them venture philanthropy. So that's the down payment and working with technical assistance to learn how to operate you know, a dry cleaner from the, from the family. But we give them that money and they don't have to pay it back for two years. They get two years to learn to run the business, right? And then it's paid back by revenue share. So they get a, a part of the revenue. And then after that, the CDFI and other institutions would come in with debt because they're able to handle a loan. But they need a couple of years to figure out how to run this darn dry cleaner or this Dairy Queen or this, uh, you know, muffler repair or whatever. And so, you know, intergenerational wealth is, the, uh, is created by entrepreneurship for marginalized communities. So helping them buy these businesses that are there. So that we're, we're building a real ecosystem here that we think is replicable. We, we, so we're finding the gaps to bridge the racial wealth gap. One is you can buy businesses that are going and good and the owners want to sell. And there's millions and millions of boomers who are ready to sell. So you, you find those gaps where the system doesn't work and you, and you look at who's creating the new financial vehicles to get the capital that's needed to the folks who don't, who don't have it, the folks without rich uncles. And what the great thing about COVID, right? How many times do you hear that? is that the fact that the system is broken is much more clear to everybody. The fact that we don't want to buy back into a rapacious economy that turns you into a human resource that can be depleted and, and, and tossed out, nobody wants that anymore. So what gives you hope in this moment? You're doing so many things and clearly having an impact. 
it's easier to do than when I started. I mean, I, I guess I should tell you why I, I went this way. Uh, and it goes back to, you know, every entrepreneur should have an intergenerational family story, I think. So uh, I grew up in an affluent extended family, but we were the, the blue collar family. You know, my father got his GED uh, in high school equivalency at 43. And so there was a year uh, at 12, I was 12 and uh, we always ate uh, at Thanksgiving at my grandmother's and my father was asked to come to fix the washing machine. And he was a guy that wore coveralls with his name on him, you know, and then he asked, you know, why don't I ever get to cut the turkey and give the blessing to the family? And uh, as he left the room, my grandmother asked my mother, why would Doyle, my father, uh, think he would get to cut the turkey? Bill is here, who's a doctor. Zill is here, who's a major corporate executive. Lou is here, who's a lawyer. John is here, who's a developer. Why would Doyle think he's there? And so at that point, I became aware of class and that we were of the second class. And so that we would eat the turkey after the people at the head table, we were at the side table, you know, so my first iteration of myself was to try to become a turkey cutter and to re reclaim our shame. My, my mother came from a white collar family, married a blue collar guy, and you know, we were stuck there. And so after, when my daughter asked me what my life is about, I said, oh, wait, my life is about the people who were, don't have a seat at the table. You know, I, I, just, I, I built SOCAP to be inclusive and then I realized, oh God, it doesn't work for a lot of folks. So now I'm kind of working for the folks that SOCAP doesn't work for. You know, folks who will never get up to venture capital funding. They'll be, you know, a, a, something that needs local neighborhood funding. So I work on neighborhood economics. All the pain that you get comes back as something you can build from. You know, that's one of the things I'm, at my age, you realize that, you know, it felt painful and now it's, it's, uh, it's transmuted into something that uh, can flower in a, in, a, in a new way. Kevin Jones is a serial entrepreneur who, with his wife, has built media and event businesses centered on niche communities. He's a grandfather and now works on helping communities of faith take seriously the call to economic justice through faithfinance.net. He is based in Asheville in the United States. This is Design Influence. I'm Isabel Swiderski. Design Influence is brought to you by the Protagonist Network. Actionable tools for social entrepreneurs who want to change the world and make money. If you'd like to apply for the upcoming March 2022 cohort, go to protagonistnetwork.com.